Well, hey, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. Um, if we haven't met yet, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I would love to have an opportunity to do that. And so a great way to do that is the welcome class that's right after this gathering. So if you've never been to one of those, uh, maybe I'll get to meet you there. Uh, but if not, feel free to come find me afterwards. Uh, I would love to say hello if we haven't got a chance to do that yet. Uh, if you want to grab your Bibles and open to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and as you're getting there, let me just give, uh, by way of introduction, a little bit of a framework for where we're going to be headed. So uh, we're going to begin a new series today that's kind of in two parts. We're going to do a kind of a two-part preview uh, these next two weeks, and then we're going to do a six-week series leading up to Easter, and all of that together is a practice series called Demonstrating the Gospel. So if you were with us in the fall, we did a practice series called Preaching the Gospel, uh, during which we tried to get a clear sense of what's the, the essential message of Jesus in the early church, and what does it look like for us to be people who boldly declare that message, not some uh, other culturally tinted message, but a, a message that contextualizes to our culture with the heart and um, the, the framework of Jesus. So we talked about that, we talked about the way to embody that and live into that. You can go back and listen to that online. Uh, this is the flip side of that. So we were preaching the gospel in the fall, and now we're demonstrating the gospel in the spring, which is uh, exactly the way that Jesus worked, that he, uh, he, he said what the gospel was, he declared the truth, and then he embodied the truth through his living. We see that throughout the uh, stories of the New Testament. And so for us, this is a series that really leans into the power of the Holy Spirit and the working of the Holy Spirit through us. So that's really where we're gonna be for the next eight weeks, working through who is the Holy Spirit, what does it mean that he's working through us. And so as I say that, there's some of you that um, just had like this, uh, this trigger and uh, have a little bit of like a, a you're a little jumpy. You're like, man, I liked this church too until they got weird. I don't understand. So some of you I know are a little freaked out right now. Take a deep breath. There's some others of you who are like, it's about time we got serious about the spirit and you just reach into your purse to pull out your shofar. Like relax, we're not there yet either, okay? So, so what I hope you're gonna find over the course of the next eight weeks is that we will present to you a solidly biblical theology of the Holy Spirit. And when I say solidly biblical, I do not mean easy and safe, I mean solidly biblical. Which means that we're gonna be invited into things that are uncomfortable for us because that's the way the Holy Spirit works. He's constantly inviting us into uh, ways that are, is both stretching us and reaching the world around us. And so that's what we're gonna be uh, looking at. On your way in, uh, if you grabbed a go guide, uh, good on you, that was what you're supposed to do. Right behind that was another little guide, it looks like this, and it's a two week practice guide called Understanding and Discovering Spiritual Gifts. And that's where we're gonna start out. So these next two weeks are really gonna be focused in on spiritual gifts, giving a, a theology kind of overview today. I wanna kind of set a framework today. And then next week, talking into what it means for us to step into the people that God's made us to be and the gifting that God's given to us. And then after that, we're gonna do a six-week kind of run through who is the Holy Spirit and what does it mean that he's interacting with us. And what does he do? What does he do in the world around us? And how has he invited us to be a part of that? And so that's going to be where we're going all the way up through Easter, which uh, shockingly is nine weeks from today. That's pretty crazy. And so we're going to be stepping into all of that as we, uh, as we go. So to start with today, 
I'm asking you, hopefully you have found 1 Corinthians 14. We're going to start there, but we're going to bounce all around because I really want to give us an overview of what the scriptures are telling us regarding spiritual gifts. Um, But before Paul comes to read, let me just give you a framework for where we are in the letter to the Corinthians. So as Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 12, he was talking about a variety of different gifts. It's a famous section that you're probably familiar, at least with the language of, that talks about different parts of the body and how we need one another, how we're all uh, uniquely gifted and put together in a way that allows us to work together, and that one part of the body or one kind of gifting is not elevated above another or, uh, or underneath another, but that all of us are to value one another together as part part of the body. And then that gives way to one of the most out of context, uh, used out of context sections of scripture, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter. You've probably heard uh, about, uh, you probably remember that from a wedding or something like that. It's actually grounded right in the middle of two chapters that are teaching about spiritual gifts. So Paul is talking about the work of the spirit. Then he says, remember, the way that you embody the spirit is through love that you love one another and he describes what love looks like and he describes the perfection of love that flows from God. And then he continues on into another kind of teaching. What I'm gonna make an argument is slightly different than the kind of teaching that was in chapter 12 as he teaches on specific spiritual gifts in chapter 14. If you've been around the evangelical church for a long time, chapter 14 is probably the chapter you skip over because it makes you nervous. That's why we're there today. So it's going to be all kinds of fun. So Paul is going to come and read for us uh, the first five verses of 1 Corinthians 14. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Thank you, Paul. And the evangelical church in America said, huh? (laughs) Did he just talk about prophecy and tongues? What are we doing here? Um, so, So as we enter into this series, I want to ask a couple questions to begin. How's the Holy Spirit work today? How do gifts work today? And what does it look like for us to enter into that? And to give you that, or kind of start to walk through that, I just want to warn you up front, this is going to be about, uh, the first 60 to 65% of this is going to feel more like a theological lecture. Some of you got really excited about that, and some of you were like, okay, I need to go to the bathroom. Just hang on, hang on. Uh, I will land the plane, and we will get to application down the line, but we need some framework for the next seven weeks as we, uh, as we move into it. So I, I want you to imagine a spectrum. When I talk about the spectrum, I want to say really clearly up front so that you hear me and you can't mistake what I said. Everyone on this spectrum 
has the ability to be a faithful Christian who loves Jesus and takes the word of God seriously. So I'm not talking about people who are followers of Jesus and not followers of Jesus, people who are right and people who are wrong, people who are heretics and people who are faithful. What I'm saying is of faithful believing people who take the Bible seriously, there's a spectrum. We're gonna say this end of the spectrum is called cessationism. Cessationism has the root word cease and what it means is that there are those who would believe that the miraculous work of the spirit by and large ceased after the apostolic age. So after the apostles who were with Jesus, after they died off, slowly over a period of a couple hundred years, the miraculous works of the spirit stopped and now God primarily works through his word and through prayer, but not in the miraculous ways that he did before. Most cessationists, not all, but almost all cessationists would say, God can still choose to do miraculous things if he wants to, and he does here and there, but by and large, he doesn't work that way as a rule. So I'm trying to represent cessationism as well as I can. That's gonna be over here. All the way over on the other side of the spectrum is called continuationism. And basically, it is what it sounds like, that the gifts of the Spirit are continuously at work and have been continuously at work in the church from the time of Jesus until now, and those gifts continue to be operational even if we don't always see them in the way that we would like to see them, and there's all kinds of reasons for that, but um, that a, a, continu a continuationist person would say that all of those gifts are just as active as they were in uh, the book of Acts, and we have the ability to enter into them. And there's a spectrum. So there are, uh, the majority of us fall somewhere in between as we uh, try to wrestle with the reality of the world around us and wrestle with who the Holy Spirit is and what he's doing. So I'm gonna lay all my cards on the table to start with. Um, we would hold this doctrine and uh, the spread of that doctrine as what we call open-handed theology, meaning we wouldn't say, no matter where you are in the spectrum, that we would separate from one another. We believe that we could be in fellowship with one another and engage one another and be part of the same congregation, be part of the same body of Christ, regardless of where you fit on that spectrum. But I and our teaching team will be teaching from the continuationist perspective. That's the alliance background, and uh, that's the perspective that we'll be teaching from. Even those of us who will be teaching very slightly on the different ways that we, we see this, but we're all gonna be presenting kind of from this side of the spectrum. That said, I recognize that for some of you, the, the gifts of the Spirit and the use of the gifts of the Spirit bring back some pretty ugly things in your past. We come from all kinds of different backgrounds, and some of you have seen the gifts abused in a variety of different ways. And, and I, I wanna first say that I'm sorry that you experienced that, and that's not the way that God intends for his gifts to, to be used. But then I wanna ask you a follow-up question, and it may seem unrelated, but stick with me. Raise your hand if you have ever heard a bad sermon. Any, anybody? If you've been here for more than a month, I'm just saying you should, like, I've preached a bunch of bad ones, that's the way, that's the way it works. So, so look, um, bad sermons happen, because even gifted people who are gifted to teach have to learn to do it and along the way make mistakes. That's the way it works. And so you've heard bad sermons, not because people who are not gifted are teaching, but because gifted people are learning to operate within their gifting. The antidote to bad sermons is not no longer listening to sermons. 
the antidote to bad sermons is good sermons, right? Like you, you develop that gift and you get better and better at it and we get more and more discerning as we listen and that's the way we grow into a healthy teaching of the word. The same thing is true for all of the other spiritual gifts. The fact that there's spiritual abuse that comes from the gifts doesn't mean the way to solve that is to avoid the gifts. It means instead that we should learn to practice the gifts in healthy ways that are in line with the scriptures. And that's what we're gonna be seeking to do both today and in the weeks that are coming. So um, I, I, I wanna give you um, my framework coming into this and uh, walk you through the way that I wanna uh, address this morning. And my framework is this, as I um, five or six years ago really started to study the scriptures in this area, what I found was that um, the, the way that particularly the Apostle Paul taught about gifts was actually very different than the way I had been taught, or I should say, the way I had understood the teaching that I was given. I, I, I don't wanna say the teaching was wrong, I would just simply say, I didn't understand it that way. And so what I wanna try to do, because maybe some of you are in that same position, is try to, through the scriptures, expose, at least for me, what was surprising. So the first thing we're gonna cover is what I'm simply calling a surprising truth that helps us to understand gifting. And then I wanna look at Paul's threefold teaching. Paul taught about spiritual gifts or what we understand to be his teaching on spiritual gifts in three different places in his letters. And I think by comparing and contrasting, we can begin to understand the heart of what Paul's saying. And then finally, a unified message. That'll be, uh, after the first two points, you will have had enough theology and your head will be full and we'll try to apply then uh, all that has been going on. So a surprising truth, Paul's threefold teaching and a unified message. So let's start with a definition. That's gonna be the easiest place to start. A surprising truth, uh, spiritual gifts. Uh, this is the way Sam Storms describes uh, the uh, spiritual gift. He says, the gifts are God himself working in and through us. They are concrete, often tangible, visible, and vocal disclosures of divine power showcased through human activity. You may or may not agree with that definition exactly, but if you disagree, it's probably on the fringes. The, the heart of what he's saying makes perfect sense. The gifts are not about the gifts, they're about God himself working through us. It's not about us, it's about him. And as we operate within the gifts, they're visible, they're vocal, they're coming out of us. So there's a, an expression, some kind of a tangible tangible expression of the work of God coming through us. That's the heart of what spiritual gifts are. So here's the challenge that I had. I grew up believing that every Christian has at least one spiritual gift. Everybody's been given one. A few people are given two or three, but every single person's been given one. And that gift is the gift that you need to like uncover and begin to operate in. What I always thought was odd was that all these people are given gifts and all of the people who had prophecy in tongues all went to the Assemblies Church down the street. I never understood how that worked. It's like everybody, all, like, all the gifts kind of congregated together. All the, all the people who had hospitality and administration came here and everybody who had tongues went to the Assemblies Church. Like what's, I don't understand. But that was the way it seemed to me to work that um, we were all given a gift and so uh, people started to operate within that, that gifting. And in that process, um, I, I was taught, you could go online right now and you can take a spiritual gifts test. 
Now, let, let me say really, really clearly, I would not recommend that, and I am not in favor of those. If you'd like to hear the diatribe on them, you can read it in that little book that is out in the lobby. I'm not going to go into that this morning, but I'm simply going to say, you could go online, and you could take a spiritual gifts test, and the way it's going to work is they're going to ask you a whole bunch of questions, and they're going to chart those against a list of biblical gifts that are compiled from Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Ephesians chapter 4, and a few stragglers from 1 Peter 4 and a few other places that they'll pull together depending on the gifts test. And what you're going to do is you're going to answer questions based on your experience, and that is going to determine whether or not you have certain gifts. And one of the big problems is that experience determines the gifts that you have. So if you've never been in a space, for instance, where tongues are a regular part of worship, you will never test that you can speak in tongues, whether or not you have that gifting, because it's based on your experience. It's based on your past, not based on your future. But you can go and, and take that, and you can consolidate those, and I have, and I did. And what happens is you begin to then get, get pigeonholed into that specific gift that's come to the top of the list, or the specific couple that come to the top of the list. So it's kind of like Christmas morning. Everybody has a present. There are all these presents laid out. And some people open the iPad Pro and they're like really, really excited. And some people open socks and underwear, right? Um, and it's like, oh, great. I got administration. That's wonderful. Now, now let me say, um, I, I, I deeply appreciate the administrative gifting more and more as I, uh, as I live life administrative. I know administrative gifting is, is exciting and important and nobody opened up administration and thought, man, I'm glad I got that instead of prophecy, right? Like it's just, it, it's the way it works. And so it's like you open up these gifts and you're like, oh, like, <laughs> thanks grandma, right? It's that kind of thing. And, and so in this understanding of spiritual gifts, what I, what I was seeing was, you're, you, you're stuck with what you get. Whatever it is you get, you're stuck with it. And you better learn to like it because there's no gift receipt and there's no place to exchange it. Like, this is, this is it. This is what you got. And, and so um, that was the understanding I always had. And then I started reading in 1 Corinthians 14. Let me read you just the first verse. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now, I'm gonna to get to prophecy in just a minute. But what was shocking to me was, if you go back to the Greek language in that verse, that word gift does not exist in the original text. What it actually literally says in Greek is, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spirituals. Now, in fairness to all the translators, it, it's, a, it's an adjective without a noun. Like, it's, it doesn't translate. Because uh, it ends with the adjective. And so it says, pursue the spiritual. Spiritual what? Well, because of the context and because of what Paul's talked about in 1 Corinthians 12, the translators, I think rightly, added in the word gift to it because there needs to be some sort of a noun in English to make it work. But literally, it says, pursue the spirituals, or what I would argue is like the stuff of the spirit. The problem with adding in gifts is that uh, we then place it into that framework that I just told you about where you open a specific gift on, Sunday, on Christmas morning and that's what you get. And Paul 
does use the word for spiritual, which is the word pneumatikos, and the word gift, which is in the plural charismata or charisma. And he does use those two words together. Romans chapter one, he talks about uh, longing for a spiritual gift to be given. And so he can use those words together. That's the only time in all of Paul's writing he puts those two words together, pneumatikos and charismata. Instead, Paul uses the charismata a whole bunch in Romans chapter 12, and he uses pneumatikos a whole bunch in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, and he seems to be making some kind of a distinction between them. There's this, um, this idea that as we pursue Jesus, we can pursue the stuff of the Spirit because Paul's going to go on to say he wishes that all of you would prophesy and that you would all speak in tongues. So, so what's he talking about? Well, let me ask you another question. Which spiritual gift did Jesus have? You may have a couple that bounce into your head, but if you think of the ones that he doesn't have, that's where you're going to start to get stumped, right? And I guess he did, I guess he did, I guess he... Like, I would make the argument that Jesus had all of the gifts. And then I would also make the argument that in Luke chapter six, the parable that Jesus told about the blind guide, when he said, when you're fully mature, you'll be like your master, it was Jesus saying that that whole idea of being like him is a possibility. That he is forming us, maybe not fully this side of heaven, but forming us into his image. Remember, when we talk about discipleship, we talk about being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing the things that Jesus did. So when Jesus says to his disciples in John chapter 14, you're gonna do what I've done and even greater things than that, it's a logical step that he would be saying we would be able to access the fullness of the spirit, not just a little bit of the spirit, not just the socks and the underwear, but all of it all of him. And so that then leads into this wrestling of um, what does it mean for me to pursue the stuff of the Spirit and how is that distinct from the gifts of the Spirit? So let me walk you through these three passages. I don't have time to read through all of them, but I'm going to give you an overview. They're, they're worth reading through individually, so I would encourage you uh, that direction. We're going to start in Romans chapter 12. Uh, as I said, Romans chapter 12, the emphasis is on the Greek word charismata, on the, uh, the word gift. So when you see spiritual gifts there, the word spiritual is not there. The word gift is there. So um, he's talking about specific gifts that are given by God. And when you start to read through the kind of gifts that he's talking about, um, he talks about prophecy, but he also talks about service and teaching and exhortation and contributions, generosity, uh, leadership, acts of mercy, cheerfulness. He he talks about things that we would say, they're, they're kind of like the way that we're shaped. They're kind of like personality traits to a large degree, even prophecy, which he pairs with faith as a, 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 a real belief in the heart of God and being able to know the word of God and speak it back. There's a sense of um, the, the, the charismata, the gifts 
that Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 12 are actually a, a, a sanctified version of our personalities in a way that we've been created. Paul's saying, as the spirit comes in and infuses you, he's gonna use that thing, that way that you've been created. So l- let me give you an example. Um, some of you know I was a weird child. That's a big shock to everybody. Um, I was a very strange kid in a lot of different ways. One of those was in my early teen years, I was really, really interested in business and specifically manufacturing because, you know, 13-year-olds. It was just like a normal thing for me. Um, and so I got interested in this, this kind of theory called total quality management. Some of you who work in manufacturing uh, know about total quality management. It's basically uh, a management theory around the way that you, um, you manufacture things for less error and... Uh, I don't have time to explain it all. That's not the point of the sermon. Um, but but here, here's what I need you to know. At 14, I was sitting on a beach chair in front of the Atlantic Ocean in Myrtle Beach reading the Deming Management Method as I was learning about total quality management because I'm that guy. And, and my parents would just look at me and then say, like, don't show your friends that. That's really weird. Like, you should, like, stay. But that was the way I was wired. That's the way God made me. That's the way God made me from the very beginning. But, but see, here's what happened. A couple years down the line, Jesus grabs a hold of my heart, and that same person who wanted to read the Deming Management Method literally grabbed Wayne Grudem's systematic theology and read it, like, beginning to end, which I do not recommend. It's masochistic. Like, it's a really bad idea. But I, I, was, I just wanted to read it. I wanted to understand it. So the same, the same wiring that was my unsanctified wiring that became my sanctified wiring, and that became the charismata, the, the gift given by the Spirit that was a, a gift of grace sanctifying who I was. Now, I don't think that's the limit of what Paul's talking about, but it does seem to be the heart of Romans chapter 12, where he's saying there are specific gifts given to specific people, and some of, you are, uh, some of you are really shaped to love people really well, and some of you are really shaped to teach and uh, make those teachings clear, and some of you are really shaped to operate in faith, and it's all part of the way that we're structured, we're, we're built. Now, compare and contrast that if you flip forward a couple uh, Uh, books to Ephesians chapter 4. So in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul doesn't use in Romans 12 the term pneumatikos that he uses in 1 Corinthians 14 that we just looked at. In Ephesians 4, he doesn't use either one. So he doesn't use charismata, and he also doesn't use pneumatikos, but he does use the word gift. So if you go in um, verse 7, There's a quote there, when he ascended, it's talking about Jesus on high, he led a a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, Paul in context is talking about Jesus going to heaven and bringing back these gifts. It's a complicated thing that we're not gonna dive into today. But that word gifts is not the word charismata and it's also not the word pneumatikos. It's a whole other word, the, the Greek word doma. And that word is another word for gift, but it's a gift that is focused on the giver more than it's focused on the gift. So one one, uh, commentator says it's um, the the closest English equivalent is the idea of largesse, 
like a, a generosity from a very wealthy person and the, the generosity just flows out of them. Because in Ephesians chapter four, what Paul's talking about is that there are these five kinds of gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers that God is giving out of the goodness of the overflow of, of all that he has, the doma, he's giving these gifts because he's in charge of the church and he is raising those up who will equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So if you keep reading through those gifts, you're gonna see that those five gifts are given specifically in order to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So why does he use the word doma? Well, because, um, I, I don't know if you know this, but I'm not in charge of this church. Jesus is in charge of the church. And I'm never gonna be in charge of the church because there's, there's no interview process. He's not taking applications, right? He will always be in charge of the church. And because Jesus is in charge of the church, it's out of the overflow of his generosity that he invites any of us into the work of ministry. That's what Paul's saying. So these five gifts, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, and teacher, are given out of the overflow of the heart of God for the leadership and the development of the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's totally different than what Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 12. And it's totally different, now if you flip back to our text, than what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Because he uses the word charismata in 12, doma, or in Romans 12, doma in Ephesians 4, and now he's gonna be focusing on that word pneumatico. So if you go to um, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, the very first verse, now concerning in your text, it's probably gonna say spiritual gifts. That word is, again, pneumaticos. It's just spirituals. Now, in, uh, now concerning the spiritual stuff. And then in uh, verse, uh, chapter 14, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual stuff. Paul could use the word gift, he does specifically in chapter 12 talk about different ways that different people enter into that spiritual stuff, that those spirituals that they've been given in unique and, uh, and specific ways. But he also says that I want all of you to engage in these gifts. That, that these miraculous gifts, different than the gifts of Romans 12, which are largely not miraculous gifts, different than the gifts of Ephesians 4, which are leadership level gifts given specifically for a specific purpose. Now Paul's saying, you all have access to the stuff of the spirit and I want you all to receive it. I want you all to, to get it. Now, in the podcast this week, we'll, we'll try to... Um, get a little bit more specific on some of these things. But what I want you to hear is this. If your theology, as mine was, of spiritual gifts, is that you get one or two, and then you have to live with it, what Paul is saying is earth-shattering. Because what Paul's saying is, all of us, as we grow up in faith, have access to the stuff of God the spiritual stuff of God. That does not mean that we are all gonna have every gift at every moment. It doesn't mean that we don't need the rest of the body. In fact, Paul makes a really clear case that some of us are gonna operate in those gifts differently than others and it's really important for us to operate together. But it also does mean that when I seek to listen to the voice of God, it's right for me to press into that whether my primary gift is prophecy or not. Like, the administrators among us can hear the voice of God. 
Those who are gifted in hospitality can hear the voice of God. We are pressing into the overflow of what Paul has invited us into, and he says, earnestly desire those spiritual gifts. One more quote from Sam Storms in his book on spiritual gifts. He he says this, there's a crucial principle we need to understand from the outset. Spiritual gifts are not God bestowing to his people something external from himself. They're not some tangible stuff or substance separable from God. Spiritual gifts are nothing less than God himself in us, energizing our souls, imparting revelation to our minds, infusing power in our wills, and working his sovereign and gracious purposes through us. To reject spiritual gifts is in a sense to turn from God. In affirming them, we welcome him. Here's the point. Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, the heart of all of those passages is not about the gift, but it's about God who gives the gift. And as we pursue, what we're doing is pursuing God. The heart of spiritual gifts is not that we would see all kinds of cool, miraculous things happen, but rather that we would draw close to God in such a way that we would begin to see the outflow of the miraculous as a part of that, for his purposes, but our purpose is not that. It's not the, the, the signs and wonders. Our purpose is him. That as we draw close to him, the stuff of the spirit becomes the natural outflow of our lives. Okay, so with all of that theology, let me try to apply it into a unified message. I believe there are several things that Paul says clearly are true for all of us coming out of all of those passages. So four things I wanna uh, walk through. First one is this, Um, we are supposed to seek and desire the stuff of the spirit. We're supposed to desire it. Um, There was an unfortunate quote from Dr. A.B. Simpson who is the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance a little over 100 years ago uh, in the midst of the charismatic renewal and the division that was happening from those who said that tongues were a necessary sign of the spirit and tongues were not necessary for you to be filled with the spirit. Dr. Simpson said, we should seek not and we should forbid not. Now, unfortunately, that quote was taken out of the context of specifically tongues as a sign of the Spirit, and it became kind of the buzzword for the entire alliance for over 100 years in the way that we look at the Spirit, seek not, forbid not. The problem with that is, like, literally the Bible, right? Because we just read 1 Corinthians 14, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. That sounds like seeking, right? But... But what was happening was that in an effort to not try to manipulate God, the Alliance had moved into a space of what what I'll call functional cessationism. Our theology was continuous, but our practice was cessationist. So about close to 10 years ago now, I uh, came into an elders meeting with 1 Corinthians 14.1. I sat down. And I said, the Bible says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And I said, I've been an elder for a while. I've been in leadership circles in this church for a long time. And I never one time remember us praying 
that we would prophesy. And it's a direct command. Paul says, do this. And I told them, I'm not sure what it means. (laughs) I just know that it says it. And so I'm not comfortable with us not doing it, but I'm also very comfortable with us figuring out what it is before we try to do it. And so we spent close to a year, I guess, maybe a little bit more than that, uh, wrestling through the text, trying to understand what's this mean. We fasted and we prayed and we sought the Lord. And in the end, we began to pray that God would speak to us in dreams and visions and words that would be in line with prophecy. We'll talk more about prophecy down the line. But we, we began to enter into it. And at about the same time, the Alliance shifted their position to a position actually that became one that we would embrace as well. Instead of seek not, forbid not, the phrase that the Alliance now uses as it relates to spiritual gifts is expectation without agenda. Which is a beautiful phrase that says, I expect that God is going to move in all kinds of powerful ways, but I'm not in charge of that move. In fact, I don't need him to move in any specific way, but I expect that he's gonna meet me. Expectation without agenda. We are called to seek the gifts of God. Number two, we need to actually use them, not just seek them. Seems to be straightforward, but important distinction. Dr. Michael Green is an Anglican, uh, British Anglican pastor and writer. Uh, He wrote a bunch of different books, but a really excellent book called I Believe in the Holy Spirit. If you want like a single volume text on the Holy Spirit, Dr. Green's is excellent. Plus you can read it with a British accent and it's just beautiful. Anyway, um, it it is no use making out a list of the treasures of our inheritance if we do not make use of them. The Holy Spirit is God's gift to us and he means us not not just to read about him, but to make use of him. The goal is not that we understand spiritual gifts. The goal is that we use our gifts. And what that means for us is that there should be no spectators in Christianity. There should be no one sitting on the side watching the other people doing the stuff. We are all whether you're brand new to faith or you've been following Jesus for a really long time, we are all supposed to be playing the game. We're all supposed to be part of this. The the work of the Spirit is that we would all, with our different roles and our different passions and our different ways of engaging, jump in. See, what happens and what has always happened throughout the history of the church is that the cultural context that we're in elevates one gift over another gift. And so if you don't have the elevated gift, you tend to sit on the side and watch the people who have the elevated gift operate in their gifting. But see, here's the problem. That's a cultural construct that's not biblical. The biblical construct is that all of us whatever our gift is, would be using our gifts, would be pressing into the forward move of the kingdom. And that's the third principle that I want to hit. Um, The third principle is they're given for the body of Christ and the demonstration of the kingdom. So if we are all to use our gifts, what happens with us using our gifts? Well, the kingdom gets lived out. This is Jesus not just proclaiming the kingdom, preaching the kingdom, but he's also living out the kingdom. We're called to do the exact same thing. Again, uh, Dr. Green says it this way. The gifts of grace are linked with the Holy Spirit, the acts of service with the Lord Jesus, the requisite power with God the creator. The spiritual gifts I have are gifts imparted by the supreme gift of grace, the Holy Spirit himself. 
They're not possessions of anyone to use as I please. They are lent by him. And what are they for? They are intended for service of others after the pattern of the one who was uniquely endued with the Holy Spirit and supremely the servant of the Lord. So so what Dr. Green is saying is we should be doing what Jesus did when he was on earth with the gifts that Jesus had. In the same way that Jesus was given the spirit and he used those gifts to reach out to the world around him, we should be doing the same thing. Now, certainly the gifts are for the edification of the body. We just read that in 1 Corinthians 14 and you'll see it throughout all of these uh, spiritual gifts texts. But in in a sense, that, that ministry here in the confines of the church building That's practice for the rest of using those gifts in the world around us. The the gifts are given, the spirit is given for the demonstration of the kingdom in the world. And so we, 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 in these safe environments, hone those gifts, learn to operate in those gifts, learn to have enough boldness in this context to say, hey, I I, I have this word that I think might be for you or I I have a way that I would love to be able to pray over you or I just have a word of encouragement that I believe that God's given me for you. And we do that in the safe environment because it's gonna feel really weird to do it in the line in the supermarket. But that's what we're called into, to be people who are so filled with the Spirit that we're listening to what he's saying in every context, here and outside of here. That's why it's so vitally important for us to be connected in community because we need a space to be able to test out those gifts, to practice. Um, Community groups aren't just a a group of people who gather. They're a space where you're gonna have freedom to be able to use your gifts. The, The negative of this setting is with this many people here between the 8.30 and the 10.30, maybe on a really good Sunday, we might be able to get 15 or 20% of people using their gifts. And even that 15 or 20%, the majority of them are not using what they would say are core gifts that bring them life. They're just kind of stepping into things that need to get done. And we appreciate that because they do need to get done. But the, the, the reality of using our gifts, like that can't happen in a gathering of hundreds, but it can happen really well in a circle of eight or 10 or 12 where we learn to operate in our gifts and people can give us feedback and affirmation and challenge in a way that can uh, spur us on. So our gifts are given for the demonstration of the kingdom and then finally the fourth thing, they're given not based on us but based on Jesus. This is really important for us to get because um, there's a whole bunch of us that are listening and saying, this is a message for somebody else because I'm really messed up. And I'm certainly not the kind of person who can receive a gift from God or have the spirit of God flow through me. Let me let Michael Green talk one more time. Uh, Dr. Green says this, the gifts have no necessary link with holiness of life nor with power in service. They are gifts of the spirit, not graces of character. Gifts of the spirit, not graces of character. What he means is you can't behave well enough to get the gift. It's not like if you get your act together, God will finally give you a gift. In fact, it's fascinating that the longest single teaching in the New Testament on spiritual gifts is to the church in Corinth. Now, if you don't know anything about the church in Corinth, they are a train wreck. Like they are a mess. Like they make us look like little choir children. Like they're they're 
terrible. Like they have sexual sin going on. They're fighting with one another. They're like, they're literally coming to communion and eating the food really fast so the poor people can't eat the food. Like the rich people are coming and hoarding the, the food at communion and not giving it to the poor people. Like, like are you serious? Like it's bad stuff. All kinds of crazy stuff is going on in Corinth. And they have incredible power in the spirit. How's that work? Well, because God only has broken people to give his gifts to. <laughs> We're it, right? And, and, and that's part of why you see people who have really messed up lives operating in the power of the spirit because God only has messed up people to give his spirit to. And so I want you to hear, it's not about you earning it. It's about God giving his grace. Here's the way I want to wrap up. Uh, this is just the beginning of what will be a, a long series of really diving into this. But like the Holy Spirit himself, who is given in order to point to Jesus, the gifts are given in order to point to Jesus. The point is not the stuff. The point is Jesus himself. He's the one who's to be glorified. It's really interesting that all four or all three of these passages of Paul are in uh, sections of his letters that are focusing on the unity of the church. The, the gifts of the Spirit should draw us close to Jesus, and as we all draw close to Jesus, we should find ourselves unified, drawing close to one another. There's a lot of irony in the fact that the gifts of the Spirit have been so divisive in modern times. Because when Paul wrote them, it was all about unity. It was all about the church being connected to one another. And that's how I want to transition us to our time at the communion table. Because the, the most level place, are universal in saying that the first 11 chapters of Romans are the most beautiful exposition of the gospel, the clearest most powerful ever written. And at the end of that exposition, Paul has like a like an exaltation that flows out of him because he feels like it's not quite enough. And then he turns and there's an exhortation to us that leads into all that he teaches us about the spiritual gifts and the work of the Spirit. And so let me give you both the exaltation and the exhortation as we go from here. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, this is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to determine the will of God, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so friends, go in the grace of knowing that he has given you all that you need and go with a message on your lips for the world, the message of peace. Go in grace and in peace, amen.